Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series, Jesus, the King Who Came to Die, a study of the Gospel of Mark. This dynamic, fast-paced book gives the story of Jesus the Messiah, God's Son, the King, who came to suffer and die to save His people. We hope this helps you understand and apply God's Word in your life today. Amen. We're going to be looking at Mark chapter 3, verses 1 to 6 this week. This is the last of five controversies in a row between Jesus and the Pharisees that happened early in Mark's gospel. And so we'll be looking at this last one. It's the second in a row on the Sabbath. So we're looking at the second part of the Son of Man and the Sabbath. So Mark chapter 3. Verses 1 to 6, you can follow along on the screen. It's also in your booklet. and encourage you to have it open in your Bible. Hear now the word of your sovereign Lord. Another time he went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. And some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. And Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, Which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. And he looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. May God bless the reading of his word, even that last verse. Um, I remember a number of years ago, we were on vacation uh, with our kids up in the Boston area, And a movie I had been looking forward to, which was a bit of a disappointment, but it came out at the time, which was The Phantom Menace. It was the second in the series of the Star Wars trilogy. And early in the movie, you're seeing the Jedi Knights. They're introducing you to a young Obi-Wan Kenobi and, and his mentor, and they're Jedi Knights, and so they're just amazing. I mean, they get in these situations, but they just seem to be able to overcome everything. But then suddenly, early in the movie, you meet this new villain that you've never seen before, a guy named Darth Maul, who they should have kept a lot more in Star Wars because he was an awesome villain. But in the movie, you see him fighting early on, and it's clear he's as good as the Jedi are. But the Jedi get on a ship and they go away. But you realize through the movie, as they're going about doing what they're doing, eventually this is going to come to a head. That, that initial battle was not going to be the end. There was no way this guy was not going to challenge the Jedi and what's going to happen uh, later on in the movie. And I bring that up because very often that's the way if you think about it in great stories and great movies, you'll see where there'll be a sign early on where you, you know, you've kind of got the, uh, you know, the immovable rock meets the overwhelming force and, and what's going to happen when the two come into conflict. And you see a little bit of it early on and then you have to wait for the resolution at the end. Well, actually, Mark has structured the gospel story around Jesus in a similar way. 
early in the gospel, Jesus is doing all this amazing stuff. And if you just read these things about him healing and casting out demons and speaking the word of God with power and people are getting saved and all this wonderful stuff, you would think, well, you know, Jesus is all just wonderful. Except Mark brings in and says, well, there is this problem. There are groups who do not like Jesus. And he gives us five conflict stories early in the gospel. And it's not resolved early on, but it's kind of like seeing Darth Maul fight with Qui-Gon Jinn there at the beginning of, of the Phantom Menace. You realize this is going to come back. And in fact, what we find when you get to the end of the gospel in Jesus' last week in Jerusalem, we're going to see a whole nother series of conflicts with the Pharisees and the Sadducees in Jerusalem that is going to end with the ultimate uh, conflict and resolution there, which is the death and then the resurrection of Jesus. So we're, we're kind of, just to remind us, this is what's been going on in the gospel. And I want us to see that we have here the culmination of the early controversies. And I'm going to kind of point out a little bit. I'm going to throw up on the screen what these five controversies look like so we kind of understand what Mark has been doing. So he's pulled these five controversies together. You remember in chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, Jesus forgives the paralytic. Okay, the guy comes and he's paralyzed and Jesus, rather than even speaking healing first, first says, sons, your, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees don't like that. Secondly, Jesus dines with tax collectors and sinners, which the Pharisees actually referred to sometimes as the people of the land. But this group of people that they thought Jesus should not give the time of day, he's actually welcoming them and eating with them. Thirdly, there was a conflict because Jesus was not requiring his disciples to fast. He was not following the traditions that had been laid down regarding all of these fast days. You remember we saw that God actually commanded his people to fast one day a year. The Pharisees said you need to do it twice a week. Okay, Jesus was not going along with that plan and it created conflict. Fourth, we saw last week that Jesus allowed his disciples to violate Sabbath traditions. Not the actual Sabbath law, but all the things that had been added to God's word. So they were just rubbing grain together in the field, and Jesus allowed this. And then today we're going to see where Jesus heals on the Sabbath. So this is the five controversies. And what we learn is every one of the controversies, what Mark is wanting us to do is to see that they center on Jesus's identity and his authority. That's really what's at stake. It's not all these other things. It's really ultimately about Jesus. So number in the first episode, the real question is, does the Son of Man have authority to forgive sins? They didn't mind that Jesus healed. It wasn't the Sabbath that time. Does he have the authority to forgive sins? In the second story, uh, Jesus says the Son of Man comes to call sinners. They don't like that. They think he should be coming to judge sinners, to cast them away. Jesus says, I've come to receive them. A, a doctor comes after the sick, not the healthy. I've come to call the sinners, not the righteous, to repentance. In the third story, the Son of Man is the bridegroom for the people of God, and he's the end of the ceremonial and sac sacrificial aspects of the law. So Jesus says, you've built up all this stuff, but you need to understand now that I have come, everything has shifted and changed. The moral law is still here, but the other aspects have reached their end, and it's time for celebration because I am the bridegroom for the people of God. 
In the fourth story we saw last week, Jesus pronounced, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. It doesn't matter what you say the Sabbath is for. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm the one who determines what is right on the Sabbath. And today we're going to see that the Son of Man gives Sabbath healing and life. All of it, the real issue is, is Jesus who he says he is? That's the issue that's going on. And then what we also notice in these, and we're going to see the culmination today, and you could already see in y'all's reaction to verse 6, notice that the stories show a growing disagreement and antagonism. In the first story, in Mark 2, 1 to 12, the Pharisees, they don't say anything, they just think it in their heart. But Jesus has it revealed to him by the Spirit of the Lord what they're thinking in their heart. In the second story, they actually say something, but they don't come to Jesus they go to the disciples and they question his disciples. In the third story, they get other people to go to Jesus to ask him questions about his disciples. So they're getting close, but they still wouldn't do it themselves. In the fourth story, they actually question Jesus about his disciples breaking the Sabbath traditions. So, so we've moved from them just thinking it all the way down to now through this progress. They're actually questioning Jesus. And in today's stories, we've already seen what's the resolution of the conflict. He's got to go. We've got to kill this guy. Okay, so notice Mark has skillfully woven these five stories together to say, do you see that there's this conflict? It's growing in intensity, and what it's all really about is Jesus. The real issue is not Sabbath. The real issue is not healing. The real issue is not all these other things. The real issue is, is Jesus who he's claiming to be? So that's kind of what's going on in the text. Now let's dive in and look at the the specific controversy this week. This is another Sabbath controversy. So I want us to begin by noticing, I've been kind of pointing this out because part of what we're doing in the uh, Gospel of Mark is we're learning to be the disciples of Jesus. So we're trying to apprentice under him. We're trying to follow his pattern. So notice again here in Mark chapter 3, we read another time he went into the synagogue. And in verse 2, we're reading that, of course, he's going into the synagogue and it's the Sabbath. So I don't want us to skip by. Notice, once again, in the middle of all this controversy, everything going on, when it's Sabbath, where will you find Jesus? In the synagogue. And what's he doing in the synagogue? He's worshiping with the people of God. Now, don't miss this. There's all kinds of controversy dogging him. If anybody had an excuse to say, you know what, I just need a break. I'm going to go out and hang out. I'm vacationing down at, you know, the Dead Sea, okay? It's not what Jesus does. It's Sabbath. I'm in with the people of God. I'm worshiping with the people of God. And who's going to be there in the synagogue? The Pharisees, the very people. It's not like, well, I'm going to go into the synagogue and at least they won't be there. No, they're going to be there. They're going to be there, and they're still going to be dogging him. But see, none of that matters. What matters is I want to gather, I want to worship my father with my brothers and sisters, the people of God. And there's a lot in the Psalms where, you know, it says this in the book of Hebrews, tells us that Jesus leads us. Here I am with the children that God has given me. We've come to worship God, okay? This is who Jesus is and what he does. So that's what he's doing. But notice in a very telling verse, in verse 2 we read this about the Pharisees. They're there in the synagogue, but why are the Pharisees in the synagogue? Are they there to worship? It's pretty interesting. Get the picture. If we were there 
and the scriptures being read, what do, what do we see Jesus doing? What do we see the Pharisees doing? What's he doing? I'm going to get him. I'm going to catch him. See, this is the exact opposite of worship. They're not there for God. They're there to accuse and uh, capture Jesus, to get him in something. This is the warped way of legalism. This is the warped way of a religious spirit. It ceases true worship. It's not rejoicing in God's grace. Its energy is focused on finding reasons to judge others. Think about that. This is how powerful legalism is. In the very presence of God's Spirit and God's Word and God's people, rather than rejoicing in the grace of God, I'm looking for reasons to judge other people. That, friends, is warped. But yet, it's what we see going on here. Now, this is important because we live in a time when, when you know, many are calling us to compromise on the Word of God. And faithfulness to God's Word is critical. It is essential that we hold to the Word of God. But it is a great danger that we move from that into a legalistic spirit that would rather criticize other people than cherish Christ, that would rather accuse those with whom we disagree rather than adore God and his gospel. There are times we may have to be in conflict. There are times we may have to speak things that are not popular. But friends, our dominant note needs to be not criticism but cherishing Christ. Our dominant note needs to be how beautiful and wonderful God is. It's an amazing thing to me. Years ago, I took a whole seminary class on Jonathan Edwards. And probably if you've ever read any Jonathan Edwards, you know of any of his sermons. Does anybody remember a famous sermon by Jonathan Edwards? Sinners in the hands of an angry God. Completely atypical Jonathan Edwards sermon. You know what Jonathan Edwards' favorite sermons were? Look how beautiful Jesus Christ is. How could, how could we not see him and adore him for his beauty, for his glory, the delight that it is to come into his presence? But see, what we, what we fastened on to is God's angry. <laughs> You're a sinner. Now, he did preach that sermon, and God did use it to help birth the first great awakening. But friends, don't, don't miss, his dominant theme and note was actually the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ because that did much more to draw the people of God into the Spirit of God than any kind of a criticism. But legalism always focuses on accusing and, and would rather be focused on the negative than on the beauty and the glory of God. Friends, when we come together, the main thing we ought to do is exactly what we've already done today. What a marvel that God brings us into his presence. What a joy it is to know God and be known by him. So we see that right off. Now, the reason they're looking for something to accuse here is that there are regulations for healing on the Sabbath. 
So they're looking because there's a guy with a shriveled hand there and they're watching to see if Jesus would heal him on the Sabbath. So I know this is going to be a shock at this point for those who've been tracking in this series. You're going to be blown away by this, but the Pharisees had rules about what healing was legal and what healing was not. I know that's shocking, right? The same people that had rules about whether you could tie a knot on your shoe, your sandal on the Sabbath, would have rules about whether you could heal or not. And their answer was, you could only heal if something was life-threatening and absolutely could not wait until tomorrow. So, uh, for example, in one of their writings, the Midrash on Shabbat uh, 22.6, it says this, they may not straighten a deformed body or set a broken limb. If you fall and you break your femur, I know it hurts, suck it up. Wait till tomorrow. That's their rule. That's how they thought they were honoring Sabbath. Now, is there anything in the Old Testament that says that? No. It says don't work. Okay, it doesn't say if you break your femur, you can't set it. Okay, it doesn't say anything about a deformed body being healed, straightening a deformed body. So there's a, shri- there's a man with a shriveled hand there. He's got some kind of deformity in his hand. There, there's something that doesn't work, whether he's got a paralysis or whatever else. Is that life-threatening? No, he's probably had it much of his life, if not his entire life. It's under their ruling of a deformed body, and therefore it must not be healed on the Sabbath. And there's no question Jesus understands that. He knows that. This is their rule. The stage is set. Is Jesus going to follow their rule or is he not? So we're going to come back now to the Son of Man and the Sabbath and see what he's doing. And I I want you to notice, it's pretty interesting here. We read in verse 3 that Jesus says, stand up in front of everyone. So he calls the guy to come to the front of the room. Now, this is pretty interesting because, see, if I were there advising Jesus, I would say, Lord, listen, you can just think it and it'll be healed. I mean, you, you heal the synagogue ruler's son when, when you, don't, you don't have to go there. You can just speak the word. You, you, you do it to the Roman centurion. The guy said, hey, just speak the word and it'll happen. You, you can do it however you want. Or, Lord, just look at the guy and kind of wink at him and tell him you can meet him afterwards. Is that not true? Rather than that, Jesus says, hey, get up here, put the spotlight on. I want to make sure you all see this. Okay, he is very clearly not only not avoiding the confrontation, he's actually provoking the confrontation. Now, the reason he's doing this, I want us to understand, is out of love and compassion. It is love and compassion for that man with the shriveled hand. It is love and compassion for the other people who are struggling with sicknesses and who have been shut off from the grace of God by all of these rules. It's even love and compassion for the Pharisees because it's a chance to see that your heart is hard. 
It's a chance to see that all of your rules, as Isaiah prophesied, are not bringing you close to God. You're worshiping him with the words of your mouth and your hearts are far from him. Out of love and compassion, I'm going to confront this right now to give you an opportunity to see what's going on. Their laws have distorted the Sabbath. They have hidden God's heart of mercy behind clouds of legalism, and it it binds them, and it actually distorts their humanity. Don't miss this. These Pharisees we are getting a glimpse of here are some distorted human beings because that's what legalism does. So Jesus calls him out, and then Jesus, before he heals, asks a very penetrating question question. And this, we, we saw last week, he loves to do this. He's going back to the central issue. So he asks him, which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? Now, he's asking this question because he's wanting them to see the error of their ways. He is, even at this moment, being patient with them. He is offering them the chance for repentance. But he does it by going back to the purpose of Sabbath. He's saying, what what is Sabbath for? Is Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? Now, their regulations actually say you can save life on the Sabbath. They want to start parsing it out and saying, well, there's another category, Jesus, which is doing nothing. But Jesus says, no, doing nothing is actually doing evil. Because I could be healing this guy, but I'm not. And I'm not healing the guy, not because God's mercy doesn't extend out, but because your rules are preventing me from doing it. That's what would be going on here. And so he says, which is the Sabbath for? And he's going back to the issue we saw last week. Why is the Sabbath here? It's for our good. It was a gift of God. Remember Jesus said, God God didn't make humans to honor the Sabbath as if the Sabbath needed somebody to honor it, so I'll make human beings to do that. No, no, no. Humans were created, and we needed the gift of Sabbath, and so God gave Sabbath as a gift, but you guys have so messed this thing up, it's not even a gift anymore. It's been lost. It's been completely clouded. Now, Mark doesn't give us the piece of information, but in Matthew's gospel, we're told Jesus actually answers his own question. How much more valuable is a man than a sheep? Because he said, what if a man falls down into a pit? Can you pull him out? The Pharisees' answer to that was yes. The Essenes, out where we got the Dead Sea Scrolls, their answer to that was no. Let the sheep lay there and suffer. But the Pharisees at least said yes. But Jesus said, but how much more valuable is a man than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. When God said rest on the Sabbath, he's not saying rest from doing good. That's not the point. That's not what we are called to. But notice, as Jesus holds this out, he gives them the chance to repent. And there's this pregnant pause. And he waits. And what's their response? Not answering your question. Not playing your game. They refuse to answer. They remain silent. 
And then in a very sad verse, notice we, we, there's three key words. Jesus looked and there's anger, deep distress, and it's related to their stubborn hearts. So first off, notice he's angry. Not a good thing. Not a good thing when it's recorded in the Scripture that Jesus is angry with you. But he's angry because they are so legalistic. They should know better. He has patiently worked with them. We've been through these controversies. He's already described what the Sabbath was for. But their hearts are stubborn. And he's also angry because their legalism is making other people suffer. It's not just their own self-inflicted wound. They are actually bullying the sheep of God. And so Jesus is angry about that. Number two, he is distressed. That's a, when the heart of God is broken because their hearts are stubborn. No matter how he has tried, no matter how much he has tried to show them grace, their hearts are stubborn. They are refusing the grace of God. And in fact, they're trying to shut others out of the grace of God of God. And so Jesus, after the anger and after the distress, it's interesting what we might expect in the text. How would we expect Jesus to heal? I say, you are healed, or the Father declares you healed, but he doesn't do that. What does he actually say to the man? Stretch forth your hand. In other words, actually do what your hand can't do, okay? I'm just telling you, stretch forth your hand. Now, this is pretty interesting because even the way Jesus heals is confronting the Pharisees with two options, okay? Because he did not speak healing or pronounce the man healed, so they can't really say, you healed on the Sabbath because he didn't say, I pronounce you healed. What he said is, stretch your hand out. Did even the Pharisees have a rule that said, I can't stretch my hand out? No, there's, there's nothing. But the reality is, when the man who can't stretch his hand out stretches his hand out at the command of Jesus, what does that prove Jesus just did? He just had the power to heal on the Sabbath, which means the Son of Man is, in fact, Lord of the Sabbath. God has actually worked through Jesus, and Jesus is therefore the agent of God. And so notice this is a parallel back to Mark chapter 2. At the, the first controversy, remember where Jesus said, so you're wondering if I can forgive the man's sins? Well, what's easier? I pronounce your sins forgiven? Or I tell a paralytic, get up and walk. But just so that you know that the Son of Man does have the authority to forgive sins, paralytic, get up and walk. Well, he's doing the same thing now. You don't think that I have the authority to heal on the Sabbath, but so that you can know that I am the Lord of the Sabbath? So they're confronted with these two options. He didn't technically even break all of their ridiculous laws, but what did happen is they know that he actually did heal the man. What that ought to prompt out of them is praise and worship to God. There's no way for them to do anything else, right? 
But oh, look at legalism. How do you sit and watch a man who has a hand that he cannot use be healed by the power of God? And your response is not praise. It's not worship. It's not hugging the man and saying you're glad for him. We got to kill this guy. He's breaking our rules. This is one of the saddest verses in all of Scripture. I mean, you want to talk about a warped way of viewing life. And notice here, we don't know that the Herodians are hardly ever mentioned anywhere in the ancient world. All we can really gather is they are people who are really allied with King Herod, which means they and the Pharisees don't get along. This is like saying, I'm going to get the most uber-conservative Republican and the most left-leaning progressive liberal Democrat together, and they both want to kill me. That's what's going on here. Two people who don't normally talk, but what they both agree is, we got to deal with this guy because he's upsetting the apple cart. We like the way things are, and he's not following. So now what's interesting is I want to also point out, so they've decided that they're going to go out and kill Jesus. What was the thing he said we have the options of on the Sabbath? Is the Sabbath for saving life or killing? What's their answer? Killing. That's what it's for. That's what you got out of the Sabbath gift. It's okay to kill. Not to heal a guy, not to save a life, but it's okay on the Sabbath to plot to kill someone. Now at this point, what we've seen, the battle's broken out, and Mark's going to go away from the battle for a while, but we got to remember the rest of the gospel is the unfolding of this inevitable conflict until they are going to put Jesus to death. And then God in the ultimate one-upmanship says, I overrule, I raise him from the dead, you lose. Thanks be to God. (laughs) Okay? But see what's going on there. Now, how, how do we apply this? What does this mean for us as disciples of Jesus? A basic question is, do I see the deadly disease of legalism? Do I understand this deadly disease? See, the Pharisees' legalism puts them in constant conflict with Jesus. Jesus has not ever broken the law of God. In fact, in another controversy, we read about one of the Gospels, he says, anybody here got any actual sins that you can lay to my account? Not a question I would throw out. Especially with a bunch of enemies, because there's plenty for them to bring up. But they don't have anything on Jesus. But what they do have is he goes against their legalistic spirit. And they are eaten up with it. And I want to point out, this is so important as we're reading the text, legalism is a particular temptation for religious people. It's a particular temptation 
for those who would, I don't know, get up on a Sunday morning and gather in a room like this. There are lots of people out there, they've got the opposite temptation. But down through history, I mean, Tony brought it up at the beginning of the meeting today. See, we, we love to make up our rules. And even Christians have fallen to this. And so we need to understand, and it's especially a temptation. You know when it's really a temptation for religious people? is when you're surrounded by a lawless culture. Because when the culture is being lawless, the temptation is to put my trust in law rather than gospel. Why did they come up with all these rules about Sabbath? Because people were breaking the Sabbath. That's why they did it. The problem is that it actually drew them away from God rather than to God. And friends, there is a huge temptation as those who love God, as those who can pray with the psalmist, oh, how I love your law. And then we see the law being trampled down. And we see people who are confused and who openly violate and mock the law of God. There is a huge temptation for me to say, I am not ashamed of the law of God because it's the power of salvation. Except for that's not what the verse says. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Because see, the law condemns. It's holy. It's right. It's good. And who in here has kept it? So, consider what the deadly disease of legalism does that we see in the story. Here's three things it does. Number one, legalism blinds us to the grace of God at work all around us. Can you imagine being in a meeting and the Messiah heals a guy with a shriveled hand? Can you imagine being there when he tells a paralytic to get up and walk? Can you imagine being so blind that you don't even notice it? That's what legalism does. They walk out of a miracle that probably none of us in this room have ever seen. They walk out of that miracle and say, we got to kill the guy who did that. At which point your question's got to be, that's what you got out of that meeting? That seems to be kind of a strange thing to take away out of that meeting. But that's what it does. It blinds you to the grace of God at work. Number two, legalism destroys to worship. Why are they there? He's going to do something. Some of those people, somebody in this room is going to do something that's not right. They didn't dress right. They didn't worship right. They raised their hands too much. They didn't raise their hands enough. They were too loud. They were too quiet. Whatever it is. But see, what, what am I supposed to be doing in worship? Who's my focus? God. Very often when I hear, when we, when we complain about worship very often, all that's really doing is revealing that my focus is not on God. Because if we are captivated by Him, the rest of the stuff doesn't matter. It really doesn't. None of that does. Third thing that legalism does is it drains away joy. Who in here wants joy? 
everybody. St. Augustine was right. Everything we do in life is we're trying to find joy. We're desperately seeking it. Legalism is drilling a hole in the bottom of our joy container and it's all dripping out. And a a legalist answer is, I will patch it up with more legalism, which is actually drilling more holes in the bottom. Okay? That's not a good picture. Blind to the grace of God, unable to worship God, and a joyless life. But is that a good description of the Pharisees? But here's the question. The point of this story for you and me is not to judge the Pharisees. Now I'm going to start meddling. Am I a legalist? Because it's a temptation for you and me as we try to follow Jesus in the midst of this lawless society. Am I a legalist? Does it have purchase on my soul? And this is not just a theoretical question. I spent early years of my Christian life being a legalist. I peddled it. I was on the street corner selling it. Nobody was more effective at selling crack than I was at selling legalism. And it is destructive. So let's think for a second just about the difference so that we can understand and detect a legalistic spirit. I'm going to throw these up. And again, if you're taking notes, these are in the front of the booklet, just so you know. But legalism loves rules more than relationship. See, Jesus was basking in the presence of a relationship with the Father. What are the Pharisees doing? They're loving the rules, baby. Now look, I get that. I'm literally the kind of guy that if I need to do something tomorrow, if you give something to me, even if I've already done it, I'll put it on my to-do list so I can check it off. Because I like lists. I'm a little bit OCD. Okay? But the point is not rules. The point is relationship. I remember years ago, I was, because I I actually do have a thing that tells me every couple of weeks, make sure, you know, you're doing something romantic with Linda. I'm I'm that guy that writes these kind of things down, right? But I was, I brought home some flowers one day, some roses with fern and baby's breath, and I gave it to Linda, and I sensed she was not overwhelmed by the act. And so I finally asked why, and she told me, because it seems like you don't put any thought or feeling into this at all. And I was like, well, I don't. It just said on my daytimer today I was supposed to stop and do this. How's that for romance on Valentine's Day? So whatever you got, ladies, feel glad. (laughs) Okay? See, I was following the rule. Linda needs flowers. I will buy Linda flowers. What is she wanting? Relationship. She's wanting my heart. Buying the flowers is great if it's flowing out of a heart of love. Okay? Legalists prefer the rules because relationship is scary. Relationship is vulnerable. Secondly, legalism loves old wineskins more than new wine. Remember Jesus brought that attitude up? 
I'm comfortable in my old wineskins. And, and y'all need to get to understand, I'm the kind of guy that if I tell you I'm going to do something, you can come back nine years and three months from now, and are you still doing it? Well, I said I was, so I do it every day like I'm supposed to. This is the way I, this is the way I live my life. Going to an academy in the Marine Corps does weird things to your personality, okay? But see, what about when new wine starts coming? And I got to get rid of the old wineskin and get a new wineskin. But I like the old wineskin. And I would rather have the old wine. Jesus actually brings it over. But see, that, that's not what we're supposed to be after. That leads to the third point. This is actually from D. Martin Lloyd-Jones in his book on revival. Legalism loves a graveyard more than a nursery. Graveyards are quiet. They're orderly. Nurseries are full of noise and mess and life. Graveyards are full of death. But legalism would prefer the graveyard to the nursery. And Martin Lloyd-Jones' point in the whole thing is, look, when the Spirit of God starts working and revival is falling, you can count on it, it's going to be like a nursery. People are going to be messing their diaper. <laughs> it's going it's to be overturning the apple cart. Not everything is even going to be good, and that's okay. We'll work through it. Rather have a nursery than a graveyard, but not a legalist. Legalism defines faith by no rather than yes. When I was a bit of a legalist and my children were young, when they would walk in, Daddy, can I? My default answer is no. Prove to me why I should let you do that. That's warped. As a grandfather, my answer is yes, of course you can have it. Whatever you want, Papa will get it. And if Mommy and Daddy get in the way, I'll remind them who's boss. Right? The, the legalist assumes it's no. I assume the more spiritual I became, the fewer and fewer and fewer things I was doing. The more things I couldn't eat, the more things I couldn't drink, the more activities I couldn't participate in, that's how I knew I was spiritual. Is that not exactly what the Pharisees are doing? See, that's not the way the grace of God works. Legalism believes sin is more powerful than holiness. Jesus, you can't eat with those tax collectors and sinners. Don't you know that that sin is going to come out and get a hold of you? To which Jesus responds, nah, the holiness of God is more powerful than any sin. Which do I believe? Do I believe that hanging around somebody who who may be living in a way that is completely diametrically opposed to the way of God. Do I believe that that's going to infect me? Or do I believe it's a possibility for the Spirit of God and the holiness of God through me to infect them? The legalist answer is clear. You've got, you got to build up the wall, stay away from it. And finally, legalism believes law is more powerful than grace. But it's not. Can law change me? 
This is in the book of Hebrews, it tells us that specifically, that's why God had to make a new covenant. <laughs> because, because the law could not change us. We short circuit it constantly. But you know what you and I can't short circuit? Grace. And thanks be to God that we cannot. And so consider that and look at it. And let the Spirit of God speak. Can, can I discern legalism in my life right now? And, and if I do, how can I address it before it metastasizes and becomes deadly in my relationship with God and others? Because see, the Pharisees didn't start out full-blown, stage four legalist. We, we start out small and we grow. But the Spirit wants to deliver us from it. And I remind you that He wants to deliver us from it for the good of the kingdom, the good of the gospel, but also for my own good. Is it good if I can't worship God? Is it good if, if I'm just constantly accusing others? Is it good to have my very joy drained away if I, because I can't see God at work around me? That's a terrible way of existence. And so the, the Lord wants to remind us how much it is by grace. And so we're going to come to the Lord's table, this table of grace. And I want to encourage you, maybe you've looked at some of that, and maybe you say, yeesh, I recognize legalism in me. Well, here's good news. This table offers grace for the Pharisee in me. Because the grace of God is what can deliver me from that. Jesus is still here to offer grace to every one of us. Legalism is a way that I try to hide from God and I try to shield myself from that personal relationship. I, I remind you right from the beginning, Adam and Eve, very first thing, we hide in the bushes, we cover with fig leaves. That's what legalism does. Rather than being open to God, with who I am. And so the table of grace calls us away from that because, see, here's the good news. We don't need to hide from our Father. How, how ridiculous is it that Adam and Eve thought they could put some fig leaves on and hide in the bushes and God would not figure it out? About as ridiculous as all the ways I try to hide from God. And all of it says at the end of the day that I believe I have a Father who loves no more than he loves yes. A father who would rather give me law than give me gospel and grace. A father who's looking for a reason to repel me rather than the father in the parable of the prodigal son whose arms are open and who runs and says, shh, 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 shh. All I have is yours. It's a gift of grace. So I want to encourage you today. The Lord is calling us into his presence to speak his words of healing and he's calling us to the table. And you may be here and feel like you can't reach, but I want to encourage you, stretch forth your hand. Take the bread of life. Receive the cup from the hand of the Lord. This is open not because of anything we've done or not done. It is grace. I encourage us, let the Lord's grace wash over us.
if I'm here and I have felt judged and cut off, sometimes a Pharisee is a Pharisee hardest on themselves. Sometimes I'm, I'm beating on others because of what's going on in my own heart. If that's you, receive the grace of God. I have good news for you. On judgment day, the Father will not turn to anyone else and ask what they think. That's really good news. It's an audience of one. It doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. And if I'm being a legalist towards others, stretch out your hand. Take grace and let the Lord heal that and wash that away. Let's be a community of grace and joy. Will people take advantage of that sometimes? Yes, they will. And that's okay. I'm not responsible for that. I want to walk in grace. So if you're here and you're a believer, you are invited to this table. You do not have to be a member in our congregation. You just need to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Understand the very things we were singing this morning that I've been talking about here. It is by grace. If you believe that, come to the table with us. If you don't, let it pass because this is a statement of faith that Jesus is my only hope. So, brothers and sisters, what I received from the Lord, I pass on to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the same way, after supper, he took the cup. He said, this cup, this is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If you can go ahead and get ready to take the bread. And as we're going through, I'm going to be praying out of Psalm 32. And I remind you, David penned this psalm after he had been confronted with his horrific sin. The sin against Bathsheba, Uriah, the people of God, and God himself. And when he had heard from the Spirit and repented, these words you'll hear are David's psalm of gratitude to God for grace. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Father, we give you thanks for your great grace and for the gift of salvation. How comforting to know that we do not have to earn our salvation by keeping endless rules, for it is a free gift through Jesus Christ our Lord. For he himself 
bore our sins in his body on the tree so that our sins might be covered and our transgressions forgiven. We thank you for the blessedness of knowing that you do not count our sins against us. Brothers and sisters, take and eat. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. And then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Lord, though we have known and embraced the gospel of your grace, we are often tempted to keep silent rather than confessing our sin. But this is a heavy burden which saps our vitality and drains away our joy. So today, we confess our sin to you. We uncover the iniquity of our hearts and our hands. And we thank you for the cleansing power of your blood and the freedom and joy of sins forgiven. Thank you, Lord, for your blood. Brothers and sisters, take and drink. Let's stand together as we conclude in prayer. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you while you may be found. Surely when the mighty waters rise, they will not touch him. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. Lord, we have openly confessed our sin and have stretched out our hands to receive your grace. By grace, because of grace, we no longer try to hide from you. Rather, you are our hiding place. You are our refuge. You are our protection you are our deliverer. And so, Lord, we humbly ask that you would fill us anew this moment with your Holy Spirit. Speak to us and guide us. When we are tempted to stubbornly turn from your grace and to try to live by law, turn us back to yourself. When we are tempted to drink the foul waters of legalism, draw us back to the sweet waters of grace. As those who know the, know the joy of sins forgiven, send us forth to proclaim the good news of your grace and your gospel with joy. Lord, we ask all this in the name of our Lord Jesus, our Savior, 
our Lord. And God's people say, amen. Now receive the blessing of God. May the grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Brothers and sisters, you are covered in grace. You are filled with blessing. Go forth and be a blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.